All right. There's two different types of people in the whole entire world. There's people who are okay with snakes, and there are people who, like me, they want eradication to all snake type, okay? Now, again, we're going to call you out, okay? You, can't, you came to church today. We're going to call you out in front of everybody. If you're, and again, if, and here's the thing. If you're a snake person, have you ever met a snake person who wasn't proud to be a snake person, right? Like, let's, let, us, let us see who you are, okay? Okay, look around. Okay, those are the snake folks, all right, guys? And, and uh, if you're a snake person online, we love you. We're praying for you. Um, it's all good. Again, every, there's two different types of people who are for them and people who are against them. And, and the people who are against them, they would say things like, and again, I've said this for in my own life, the only good snake is a, okay, yeah, my people, my people, my people. And again, I don't, I don't want church to be a place where people get divided and, you know, the world's already divided enough. Um, but I want to tell you a story today about a snake, specifically a Western diamondback rattlesnake. There's a guy in Texas. His name was Jeremy Sutcliffe. Jeremy Sutcliffe was a guy, and his wife was out doing some uh, yard work, and she was picking through the kind of flower bed, and she was getting some weeds and everything, and she realized that there was, in fact, a diamondback rattlesnake in her little flower bed area. And this guy, um, he hears his wife screaming bloody murder. And so he does what a good man should do. He goes outside and sees what's going on. And he comes to find out that a rattlesnake is out there. And so he does what a good man should do. He goes and gets a shovel. Okay. So he goes and gets a shovel. He finds a snake. He takes a shovel and just decapitates. No, 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 no. He decapitates to the glory of God this rattlesnake. He's defending his house. So we're talking about defend today. He, he kills the snake, okay? Because he knows animal control would take him an hour and 45 minutes to even get there. He kills the snake. And then I don't know if he's just feeling good about life. He feels accomplished that day. He goes inside, walk, kicks his feet up, gets a cold drink. I don't know what he does. But 15 minutes or so passes and he goes back outside to clean this thing up. So he takes the bottom half, the tail and everything else. And he goes and throws that in the garbage can. And then he reaches down barehanded and goes to pick up the snake head. And you know where the story's going. And the snake bites his hand. And so now he's making the same noise his wife made. His wife comes out just in time to see him rip this rattlesnake off of his hand and throw it down to the ground. Now, she's a nurse, somebody said karma, uh, which we don't believe in. Um, so this all happens. His wife's a nurse. She knows we've got to get to a hospital, not just any hospital, a hospital with antivenom. And so she gets on the phone and says, where's the nearest hospital with antivenom? Unfortunately, that's an hour away for them where they live in Texas. And so they're 10 minutes into the car ride. He's already losing his vision. He can't see what's going on around him. He's beginning to pass out. Swelling is happening at this point. And um, things progressed and got worse. He ended up going into a coma. Three different times the doctors told his wife he is going to die. And I tell you this story about something that happened in the physical realm of life to help you understand what I believe is going on in the spiritual realm of life. See, we live in this time between the moment where our savior Jesus, instead of taking a shovel to sever the head of our enemy, Satan, who comes against us, where our enemy, Jesus comes against, our enemy, Satan comes against us, Satan took the cross, or Jesus took the cross and allowed it to be the tool that dealt the death blow to our enemy, Satan. The problem is, in the very same way that Mr. Sutcliffe had this 10 minute whatever span where the death blow had happened, but the danger was still there and evident in the snake. That's the time that we live in. A time where we do have an active and real life enemy and he absolutely has had the death blow dealt to him. But despite the fact that he has had his head severed by the cross and empty tomb, he is still putting his venom into people today. And he can still bite. And 
there's an article that was written in the uh, Chicago Tribune, where, which is where I, f- I found all of this, which, again, these are the fun things I get to do uh, on my Monday 9 to 5 is look up snake stories. Um, uh, but, but in this article, uh, they interviewed this guy whose name was Sean Bush, and he was a snake ex- expert at the Brody School of Medicine in Eastern Carolina University. Uh, and he told uh, NBC News in 2014, he, this is his quote, listen to this, it is very common for a snake's head to still bite because it's a, listen, it's a last ditch effort to survive. They get real snappy in the throes of death. So we look around and I'm like, man, things, things seem like they're going from bad to worse. The enemy gets real snappy in throes of death. And as the time gets closer and closer to when he, he will meet his ultimate destruction, even the animal kingdom points to the fact that it will get worse. It's a last ditch effort for him to survive. Now, what we have to understand is that we have two things, a defeated enemy, but a still dangerous enemy. And most of us, we don't take that as a both and, we just kind of have one or the other in our mental approach to Satan. We either think, okay, he's defeated and he's defeated through the cross and I put my faith in the cross and Satan is defeated and I just go live my life. And I don't worry about Satan. I, I don't care about those things and I'll let all the things in my life and I just kind of, the same way that, that Jeremy kind of just went out in his yard and he's like, ah, oh, it's dead. We kind of treat Satan like that too. Oh, he's dead. It's not real. He's out, he's out there. That's for people who are pulling Ouija boards out when their friends are coming over and you know practicing Wicca and everything else. That's, that's not for people like me. I go to church. And then there's the other side who go, Satan was just trying to get out of us in the Dodge Caravan this morning. And we were, Satan was trying to get us. He was trying to get us. Not, maybe, maybe it was just y'all though, you know? And you better not, you know, you go over to that girl, lady, you know, so you have this grandma or that aunt who's like, you better quit drinking the monster energy drinks. There's demons in there. I watched a YouTube video and this, it said it in there. And you, like, you know, these people who the, the devil's around every corner and the devil's making everybody do it are the people on the, the other end where they're not like hyper alert to satanic things and it's becoming over mystified, but they're from the other side of like, he's got me. And man, I'm never going to, I'm never going to make it. Like, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm I, there's no hope. I can't do this. Enemy's got me. I'm better off on this side than that side. And so what I'm trying to do today is to say there is an active and real enemy. He is definitely dangerous, but also he is definitely defeated. And that's, that's the key that we've got to lean into. He's defeated, but he's still dangerous. And he is both. And so because he's defeated and dangerous, what we have to do on our end, and this is as we're walking through the Solid Ground series, we have to defend our lives against what he would seek to do to steal, kill, and destroy. And again, the good news is we don't just have to defend him on our own strength and our own power. We have someone who is fighting for us, who is defending right alongside with us. So today we're going to walk through that. Again, today's the last day of our Solid Ground series. We've been walking through this acronym, S-O-L-I-D. Start out talking about, hey, if I'm going to build my life on solid ground, I'm going to build a life that can withstand the ultimate storm of God's judgment. If I'm going to build a life that can withstand even the little storms of the things that happen in this life, I've got to be fully surrendered to God. And from there, I've got to obey what he actually says. And by the way I obey, it will show that I'm actually surrendered. Because surrender is one thing, but to obey actually proves that I am actually surrendered. And from there, S-O went to the L. He said, love is the hinge point of all of this. That you will never surrender to a God that you don't realize how much he loves you. That you'll never obey a God and, and, and in love obey him if you don't realize first how much he loves you. And last week we talked about being intentional. And how if we're going to build our house on solid ground, we have to do that with intent. We have to plan ahead. We have to think through what God is doing in our lives and what he would want to do through our lives. 
and take a real honest look at what's going on. And today we're gonna lean into, okay, we have a real life enemy. God wouldn't just say, hey, you're here on earth, you're in this life, you're doing these things, go build a house on solid ground and just expect things to be peachy and unicorn because you dug all the way down to get to the solid ground. So because you're up on the mountain, you're on the hillside, you're away from everything bad now. No, remember back to the parable. What happened for both the wise builder and the foolish builder? What did they have? They had storms. They had things that were actively protagonists in the story to try to tear down what they were building with their lives. And we will too. And so today I'm gonna walk through our three enemies. I would define our three enemies like this. Satan, flesh, and the world. Uh, if it wasn't enough to have Satan against us, we also have this thing that is our flesh. And we're gonna unpack all this today. And, and, and hear me on this, like, uh, there's a lot of notes, there's a lot of slides, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Take notes, please. Like, man, we're talking about defending against an enemy. And so you need his playbook to be able to run the plays against him that you need to run. You, you better believe in the Super Bowl, it's gonna happen today, that, that everybody on the opposing team, they would kill to have the other team's playbook. I'm trying my best to give you the other team's playbook today. So take notes on that. We have these three enemies, Satan, the flesh, and the world. We're gonna start here with Satan. So first of all, who is he? The Bible talks about Satan as the father of lies. You use some different terms, whether it's Satan, whether it's the devil, the, the tempter. He gets kind of given a bunch of different titles, never really a true name. But Jesus, he's talking to a group of Pharisees in John chapter eight. If you got a Bible, you can go there. He talks to a group of Pharisees in John chapter eight. And he's talking to this group of Pharisees and he's trying to help them understand why they're not getting him, why they don't believe that he, he is who he really has said he is. And this is how their dialogue goes. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, and the them there is the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I have come here from God and I have come not on my own, God sent me. All right, he's saying, I'm, I'm from God. And if you really were God's kids, you would know this. Again, he's saying this to, to people who said, we were, we were Abraham's children, you know, everything, who were very proud of their lineage. Verse 43, I love this, Jesus' question. He says, why is my language not clear to you? Here, here, and he answers his own question. Because you are unable to hear. Underline that word, unable to hear. It's input problem. You are unable to hear. And he's gonna tell them why they're unable to hear in the next verse. You're unable to hear, here's why. Because you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. So the reason that you can't hear the truth is because you've allowed his lies to infiltrate your mind to so much cloud from the very God that I'm here to represent, I'm here to be, I'm here to show to you. And he talks about when he changes, you belong to your father, the devil. Now he's talking about that father, so track with us here. You belong to your father, the devil, which you belong to the liar, and you want to carry out your father's desire. So Jesus just said, I'm here on behalf of the heavenly father. I'm carrying out his desires. And now he says, okay, you're here carrying out your father, Satan's desires. He, he's given his identity. This is probably the John 8, in my opinion, this back half of it is probably the best understanding and, and details we have about Satan's identity and who he is, and Jesus gives that to us. He was a murderer from the beginning. Again, his end goal is not to just mess up your life, not to just make you late for work, not to, to get you in arguments. His end goal is murder. His end goal, and again, there's a difference between murder and just killing. Murder is intent. Murder is planned. Murder is strategic. He's a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the what? The truth. So here in the truth and murderer, you see that is his end goal. And his means is lies. This is what he wants to do. 
for you and for me, for everybody else, your kids, your wife, everybody. He wants to murder you. And the way he does it is by keeping you from truth. He says, and there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's where it all came from. That is who he is. So now we're talking about who he is. Now the question becomes, well, why in the world does he want to kill me? Like, what does he have against me? I'm just, you know, a middle-aged mom trying to make ends meet. I'm I'm just a a tax, you know, guy. I'm just a plumber. I'm just just a regular guy, you know, living in Ola trying to make ends meet. Why does he have such a beef against me? Here's why. Here's why he wants to kill you. Back to the snake thing, he's dying. By the cross and empty grave, he has been dealt a death blow. Now, he was dealt that death blow and you're partly to blame for that. And I say partly there on purpose. Jesus didn't go to the cross and give his life just for you. I would actually say that that's probably number two on the priority list. Jesus went to the cross and gave his life to glorify and magnify the father, first and foremost. We do not have a me-centered gospel We have a God-centered gospel. So even Jesus going to the cross was to glorify God. But the good news is you're partly to blame because you were part of the reason why all that happened. Because even though you have no idea what it was like in the Garden of Eden, God does. He remembers with grand detail what it was like to be in perfect union with man and woman created in his image. And he was willing to surrender his son so that he could get that back. All right? So he's dying and he knows you're partly to blame. And as much as he would want to get after God for that, he knows he can't. So he does what a bad enemy does or a good enemy does. And he tries to get at God's image bearers. That's me and that's you. Second reason though he wants to kill you is he hates your identity and he hates your inheritance. And track with me on this. Start seeing this in the temptations you face in life. Every ounce of the temptations you will face in this life, they run along those two parallel tracks. He will attack your identity and he'll attack your inheritance. All the temptation you face is to try to get you to trade in those two things, your identity and your inheritance. There's a couple of passages that I think speak deeply into this and why he hates those two things. Matthew 6, 8. Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And he he says this about God. He says, your father, and again, this is where he's talking about, capital F, actual father, Abba father. Your father knows what you need before you ask. So again, right here, even in this own passage, your father, that's your identity. You're you're not just an accident. You're not just, you know, a a few ticks off of a chimpanzee. Like you have father in heaven. It is God of God, the king of kings, the Lord. That is your father. And that's part of your identity. And he hates that that you're receiving that love, that you're a recipient of that. He hates it. That's your identity, okay? And because that's who you are, again, track with me for the inheritance side of here, you have a father who knows what you need. So a God who not, doesn't just know what you need, but is, is intent and willing and ready to provide for what you need. Because that's what this whole passage is about. And if you kept reading Mark, Matthew 6, it talks about, hey, ask, seek, knock. Your, your father loves you. He cares for you. He's, he's ready and willing to give to you. He's going to give to you. Ask, seek, knock. Another passage that, I think very much so illuminates this to help us understand what is actually going on. Matthew, or Romans eight sixteen, Romans 8, great chapter. Probably one of the best chapters in the entire Bible, in my opinion. Amazing, amazing chapter. Go back and read it this week. Romans eight sixteen says the Spirit himself, capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit. That, that part inside of you that God hardwired in there, the of God of part of you that's in your, in, in your being, that we are God's children. 
now, all right? So there's something in you that is hardwired that goes, I need a father, I need a provider, I need a protector. So it says, okay, now if we're children, we're children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So again, track with me here. This is the inheritance part. He's saying, if we are in Christ, if we have put our faith and our trust in who Jesus is and his finished work on the cross and his empty tomb, if we've put our faith in that, then what we are is we are now heirs. We have been set free from slavery to sin and bondage. And now we are heirs with Christ. We have a divine inheritance and Satan hates our identity. And he hates the fact that the inheritance we have coming our way is all of the glory and splendor of the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me ask you this. What do you have to do in order to receive an inheritance? How, how hard do you have to work to get an inheritance? You don't gotta do nothing. What do you gotta do? You just gotta be born. You gotta be born in the right family. And, that, and that's, that's what I'm after here is this inheritance that we receive is a direct result of us being reborn, being born again. And it's of nothing that you did. Even the faith that you had was awakened by Christ. And so now I want to talk about, we kind of said, okay, this is why he wants to kill you. Now I want to talk to you about how he's trying to kill you. How does he try to kill us? Lies. Kind of covered this. Knew this is where he was going. Think about back to the garden. And I don't know how he could do this because snakes don't have uh, extremities. But what he didn't do was he didn't slither up with, with a knife in between a coil. He didn't slither up with a stick. He didn't slither up with, with a knife. Like he, he didn't have any of those things. Satan slithered up to Eve with what? With an idea, with a lie. And that's why Jesus said what he did in John 8. John 8, uh, verse 32 says, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he wouldn't say that the truth is something that will set you free if lies didn't do the exact opposite. Lies keep us in bondage. Lies keep us bound up so much, they bind us to eventually destroy us. That's what he's after. He wants to kill us and he wants to use lies to do it. And here's some of the tactics. Like to me, <laughs> when we think like Satan is trying to destroy my life via lies, that they're gonna be lies you can recognize. The best lies are not the ones you can recognize. They're the ones that you had no idea were actually there. They're ones that are like 98% true and then 2% uh, false. And those are the ones Satan loves to give. So he's not gonna come at you and just give you this bold face, like completely obvious lie, because he knows you wouldn't believe in that. He's gonna come and give half truth. He'll come in and say, this is gonna feel good. And like for 3.5 minutes, it felt good. And then a tsunami of shame blasted you in the face and that didn't feel good. And then he capitalized on that to go, yeah, how, you're disgusting. God, he's never gonna love somebody who does that kind of stuff. And he's the very one who got you to bite the hook and believe in it. Another way um, he does this is, <laughs> I don't know, I, I guess I would call these like prom night lies. Um, it's some of the truth without the rest of the truth. It, it's, it's you showing back up at your house on Sunday morning after prom and your mom going, where'd you go last night? And you going, oh, just, I mean, we just, we just hung out at Jim's. And you did hang out at Jim's for 34 seconds while he could change clothes so you guys could get back in the car and go to the raging party on the other side of town that you're still hung over from. And that, that's what he loves to do. He said, loves to say, here's the truth. I'm gonna leave out the other part of it. I'm gonna leave out the brokenness. I'm gonna leave out how this debt is gonna trickle down into your kids and they're gonna end up paying for all the things that you bought while you were alive. 
I'm going to leave all these things out. And then this is, this is one I've seen him start doing more and more in this day and age we live of like turning the volume up and creating echo chambers in people's lives. I would, I don't know, you can label this whatever you want to. I would call it like the megaphone lie. And this is where Satan takes something about your life that actually is true, but he knows that it is something about your life that is true that you are insecure about. And what he does with this something that is actually true in your life that you're insecure about is he dials the volume up to 10 on that truth so loud that you begin to believe lies about all sorts of other things. For me, how he's done this in my life is he said, you're fatherless. You don't have a dad in your life. Nobody's showing you how to do this thing. You're gonna screw this up because nobody showed you how. Good luck changing that tire without anybody showing how you change that tire. Good luck raising these kids without doing that. You're fatherless, you're fatherless, you're fatherless. And for some of you, he comes in and goes, you're not married. You're not married. Guess what? Another day passed. Guess what? You're not married. You're not married. You're not married. You're anxious. Hey, you're anxious? Oh, guess what? Another day has passed. You know what didn't work? Church. You know what didn't work? Those medicine. Guess what you still are? Anxious. You're anxious. You're anxious. You're anxious. And he tells you something that actually is true. So much so but you, that you begin to f- hyperfixate on one truth so much so that you miss out and fail to see anything else is true in your life. And then you begin to live a lie because your life has now become defined by one thing that you're self-conscious about that actually is true. Some of you in the room, it's, you're old. Maybe he whispers that one to you. You're old. You're really old. You're old. Like you can't go to children's ministry and rock those babies anymore. You... They wouldn't let you in, in student ministry. You, your pants are, are too baggy. Like you, you can't do it. You're too old. And we hyper, you hyper fixate on I'm too old and go, well, let me just, you know, let me just retire. and let the young whippersnappers take it from here because my, my best days are behind me. And see, you hyper fixate on I'm too old and you begin to believe the lies that my best days are behind me. Or you go, or he comes to some of you young people in the room and he goes, you're too young. You're so young. Sow those wild oats, bro. You're so young. Have at it, man. Do what you gotta do. Do what you wanna do. You're young. Live. Have fun. You're young. You can figure out this whole religion thing when it's old and boring. You get married and have kids and they need to have some structure and morals in their life. Then come back. But for now, bro, you're young. Girl, you're young. Have fun. Hyperfixate on a truth so that you begin to believe other lies. Those are the best strategies. Now, the question becomes, okay, how do we actually defend against these? All these strategies, everything else, how do we actually defend? John uh, 16, verse 12 and 13 is, in my opinion, the absolute best place to go here. How do we defend? Jesus is getting ready to go and be crucified. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Which, side note here, don't get frustrated when Jesus is, you don't feel like Jesus is speaking to you because it's probably a good thing sometimes because he may be like, listen, you want me to talk to you right now, but listen, all the things I got to say to you, you cannot handle right now. So don't freak out if you feel like he's being quiet. Just continue leaning in, continue to pray. When the time comes, he's gonna say what he needs to say, okay? So he says, I got a lot more to say to you, but you can't bear it right now. Then, He says, okay, but there's gonna be a time that comes. But when the spirit of 
truth. Now, listen, that's a capital S because he's talking about the third person of the Godhead. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And again, this is really the first time for his, his Jewish group of disciples who he's telling this to, this is the first time this concept is really being thrust into the prefrontal cortex of their brain where they're going, what is this? You're okay, like you're here. And like, we felt like God's spirit was on you because that's how it worked with all the prophets. So you're telling me that like, you're gonna go away and then there's this spirit that's, going to come. And the way he chooses, again, this is probably one of the very first time he introduces the Holy Spirit to the guys who are going to get ready and by the power of the Holy Spirit and go and change the entire world. When he chooses to identify it, he doesn't call it the spirit of faith, the spirit of hope, spirit of joy. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, because he knows that when he sends this spirit into the world, it's going to fight and combat all of the enemy's lies. So he calls it when the spirit of truth comes, he Again, it's not just a ghost spirit out there. It's not a thing. He will guide you into all the truth. It's part of the Holy Spirit's role. I think sometimes we, we, we got a little bit of God. We get a little bit of Jesus. We forget about the spirit. The spirit is, is and I, the way I would, I, I've said it before, like I know a lot of times we're like, man, if I could just go to work and Jesus was beside me the whole time, I would be better off. <laughs> Maybe, but here's the truth. The Holy Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. And Jesus said that. He made that clear. That's why he said what he said right here. Another passage that I love in this is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. When we talk about how do we defend against this. First, it's a, it's a trust issue. That all the sin in your life, everything, every mistake, you, every believing the lie is anchored back in mistrust of what the father said was true. He slithered up and said what he said to Eve and got her to doubt and not trust what the father said. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding because you're not gonna understand what's going on in this world. It's crazy, it's messed up. Number six, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Another one on this is Psalm 119, 105. It says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so how do we defend? Like you actually have to be in the word. Like I, I can't defend against the lies of the enemy unless I know the truth of my father. And so if, if the input in my life ratio is a whole lot more world and so much fewer the word, well, then I'm, I'm, I'm walking in a territory where I'm a walking target. Like here's, here's the thing. I'm not telling you to not come to church anymore. <laughs> Let me just phrase what I'm about to say with that. I'm just telling you, it's crazy to think that you can put 48 to 50 hours worth of worldly, fleshly, garbage content into your life and then come in here and get 30 to 45 minutes of the word and it make a difference in your life. Like this, this whole preaching thing is supplementary to what you should be doing on your own to, to, feed, to become a self-feeder, to become a truth teller, to become a truth ingester in your own life. And, and hear me, like, don't be the type of person that goes, Pastor Trent said it, it must be true. Sometimes I've said stuff that's not, like, and I have to go back and repent of that and everything else. Like, you won't know if what I'm telling you is even true today unless you go back and get in your word. So like, we gotta be people who say, your word, that's the lamp I'm it, it shows me whether or not I'm walking in a lie or I'm walking in truth. So from here, I want you to see, Satan, his, his whole strategy is lies. We defend by truth. 
But I want you to see how there's a whole outer working process that goes here with Satan, our flesh, and the world. It's a working order of his strategy. Uh, I found this in a, in a book called Live No Lies. It's by a guy named John Mark Comer. It's such a great book. Um, this is taken directly from there. I think I may have, I had the things that are in paraphrase, are in para, what do you call these things? Uh, Cheetos. Um, I, I added white Cheetos to them. So here's the working order of Satan's strategy. All right, track with me here. This is worth the price of admission. Go buy the book, seriously. So Satan spreads deceitful ideas. Those are his lies. So he spreads these deceitful lies, these deceitful ideas. He plants those in our minds. Now from there, those deceitful ideas play to our disordered desire. He says, well, you kind of like, you have some organs and those were created to do certain things and you have a desire to do certain things. So you shouldn't have to wait until what God's word says is the primary place in context where that can happen. So you should do it now. Again, deceitful idea playing on a disordered desire. Now, track with me. This is, how, this is our flesh, part two. And then three, our disordered desires then become normalized in a sinful society. You see how the toilet bowl flows down. This is, hey, like nobody waits until they're married to have sex. Nobody gives 10% anymore. It's a whole lot better to get than to give. You got to make a name for yourself. And this, this is where things become normalized. Hey, it's your body. It's your choice. So let's talk about this second one in our flesh. Our flesh, I would define it as this. It's the fallen primal drive for self-gratification, pleasure, self-protection, security. Oh, I, I did that last service too. Here's a good quote. Uh, the problem is that we tell lies is that we live them. And where they come out, where they are lived out is in our flesh. All right? This is where they happen. Our flesh. So the flesh is our fallen primal drive for self-gratification, pleasure, self-protection, security, and self-exploitation, power. There's something inside of you that wants pleasure, security, and power. And the majority of your temptations, they run along those lines to get more of whatever one of those, get more pleasure, get more security, get more power. The, the best um, understanding that I, I have received of what the flesh actually is comes from Galatians 5. If you've got a Bible, go there, Galatians 5, 13. Galatians 5, 13. Just kidding. I don't got time for that. That's good. Men, I'll talk to you guys about that in men's ministry. I used this verse last week. So y'all, I'm gonna keep skip through that. Let's go to Galatians 5, 13. Okay. This is a good verse. This is a, this is a good 4th of July verse, right? You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And as red-blooded Americans, we're like, mm-hmm, yes, I am. The problem is, we think American freedom and not New Testament freedom. And here's the difference. Freedom in our minds is the permission to do whatever we want. That's what freedom is. Freedom in the New Testament though is not permission, but it's power. It's a power that I've now received to want and to do what is good. Even if it's not the thing that I am most naturally inclined to want to do but I'm gonna want and I'm gonna do the thing that is actually good. And again, that good is not defined by my own insides. That good is defined by a good and gracious God. So this passage continues on, Galatians. So uh, you, were, you were called to be free, but not to use your freedom to indulge the flesh. 
Rather, to serve one another humbly in love. Yeah, that's not as much of a America verse there. We're not the best at that. Then 514, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out because you're going to be destroyed by that. You bite somebody, they're going to bite you back. So I say, here's, here's where he starts getting into this whole flesh and spirit. So I say, walk by the spirit. And again, how, he, Paul is picking up on Jesus laid down. It's the spirit of truth. Walk by the spirit. The whole light your path. Like this is what the spirit's job is in our day-to-day life is to help us learn how to walk and how to live this life. Walk by the spirit of the truth and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are contrary to the spirit. And the spirit is what's contrary to the flesh that run in opposite directions. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. So we heard that first part. We heard 13A and we're like, I get to do what I want. And Paul wraps it up and goes, yeah, you're, you're not supposed to do whatever you want to do. <laughs> I love that about, I love that, Paul. But what he's saying here is there's something natural inside of you that's gonna wanna do what you wanna do, but the Holy Spirit was given to you to guide you into what's best for you. Now hear that word, best for you. I know this may seem very countercultural to say, what you want to do is most of the time, not what's best for you. And Paul says what just doing what best of you leads to in verses 19 through 21. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. You just kind of catch all phrase there. I warn you, as I warned you before, Paul's saying like, I've told you this, guys, lean into this, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what he's, what, you gotta understand what's being said right here. He's saying, when you do these things and still think that you're going to inherit the kingdom of God, you have now reinvented a God who gets on board with you doing these things. And that's not a real God. That real God will not save you. The true God cannot be mocked. Get rid of the one you've invented that's cool with this and understand that if you want to, you want your inheritance, right? Because of your identity, if you want that inheritance, it's not found here. It's not found in gratifying our flesh. It's found by walking by the spirit. So how does the flesh want to destroy us? Slowly, wants to destroy you slowly. And the way we defend against the flesh is by feeding the spirit. I love what Romans 8, 13 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Again, I love it when the Bible is just very clear and point, you know, straight to the point. If you live by the flesh, which again, Paul gave us in Galatians, that whole like, this is what that looks like. It's this, it's what you see on the TV shows you watch. It's what you wanna do. Um, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit, again, capital S there, the Holy Spirit, this is so key in defending his role in our lives every day. If by the spirit you put to death, not turn down, We're not dropping the volume on the flesh. We are putting to death, killing it. Not saying go to go to the house down the road. Not saying I'm you know I'll cut back from one like I used to have three drinks. I'm going to cut back to one drink. I usually listen to this kind of music. I'm just going to listen to less of it. Put to death the misdeeds of the body. You will live. Last enemy is the world. When it comes to the world. Paul gives us another great explanation of what this is after here in Romans 12 too. He says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, which is his way of saying what we're not after is take 
all the things of the gospel and Christian life and then this world that you live in and create this kind of like amalgam of things and let it be so nice and palatable that the world can get it and not realize they're even getting it. No, he says, don't conform to the patterns of the world. You were not created for this world. You're not of this world. Don't conform to the patterns of it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then uh, John, one of Jesus' absolute best friends, comes on the scene. And John, when he's writing uh, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, he's about to die. Like he's really old. And just kind of like how that like, I think some people as they age, some people just get really nicer and they're just so kind and gentle. And then some people as they age, they just start telling you just straightforward, blunt truth. They're like, I'm gonna die. I don't have no reason to sugarcoat anything at this point. And that's kind of where John was. And that's why he says stuff like this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in them. Super straightforward. And, and I think we can hear a verse like that and go, dang, like, does that, are you talking about like my sister who's struggling with attraction to members of the opposite sex? Or are you talking about my, my brother who said he's now an atheist now? Like I can't have anything to do with them because like, that's hard. Here's what I would say. No. When he's talking about the world, he's not talking about people. The, the Greek word for world, sorry, I'm gonna sound like I'm losing my mind here. The Greek word for world is cosmos. And kind of like how I could say the word ball in English, and you could, it could be three different things. It, it could be what Freddie Freeman hits really far, a baseball. Um, it could be uh, a dance, like a formal dance in like a, a ballroom or whatever. Or it could be what, you know, old people say when the young kids are having a good time. Oh, they're, they're just having a ball. Um, it could be in all three of those things, okay? And that's kind of how the, the, wor- the word world is in the Bible. When he's talking about it here in John, he's meaning it from this as the ordered system and the current arrangement. So read John 1, 2, 15 again with that in mind. Do not love the world. So like how things are ordered and arranged here, don't fall in love with that. How this has to happen for this to happen, how these things go, how it's in its currently arranged, anything of the world, anything in this way that it's arranged. He's saying, if you have this love, if this is what you're after, if you like the order that things are going in and the direction that things are headed, When he's talking about world, he's saying, if you like the way it's set up right now, where the weak are marginalized, if you like the way right now, where if you can get it to trend, then it's truth. If you like the way things are being redefined and reinvented, and you love how things are headed, then the love of God is not in you. Because what he's saying here is that the world is running headlong this way, and that's why we're enemies of it. And then Jesus and God and the kingdom of God is running headlong the opposite direction. That's why they killed Jesus, because he was against the grain. And so he calls us to do the same. He calls us to not um, freak out and and hide and just become these hermit pariahs where we're scared of everything in the world, but to say, we're going to go be influencers of the world. We're going to take the God-given influence that he's given us and we're going to defend our families against the things where we would say, hey, this is now normalized and go, no, 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 no. We're, we're a different part. We're something different. And this is where I would call all of us to say, okay, if we have these three enemies and God's calling us to defend, well, how do we do that? What does that look like? Here's what I know is part of it. It's realizing that this whole thing that we do this called church, it is not 
this cruise ship mentality where I come in and I find a place that makes me feel good about what I'm doing. It's understanding that, guys, we are actually called to be on a battleship. That if you have to sleep in a bunk, you sleep in a bunk. That, that there is actually something going on that's real. That if you don't like how worship sounded today, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. It's about the God who brought us here and gathered us together to be able to worship him. And, and we don't exist to just sit here and consume what would come in. We exist to defend and to stand for the things of God. When I was a 12-year-old man, there was this uh, dog in my neighborhood, and he looked a lot like this right here. Oh, back to him. It was a Rottweiler dog, terribly ferocious, horrifying animal, all right? And it was, uh, they would keep it chained to a pole, like a basketball goal pole in the neighborhood. And they lived up the road from us, probably about seven or eight houses up the road. And then we lived kind of down at the bottom of the hill. And I would ride my bike around the neighborhood. And every time you go past this dog, just start losing its ever-loving mind, foaming at the mouth, absolutely just, just losing its mind and wanting to attack you. And I would always think, man, it'd be bad if that dog ever got out. And it would. And one morning, um, I was up before some of my buddies, and um, we were riding, I was riding around the neighborhood just kind of by myself on my 10-speed my uh, Huffy bike and just cruising around the neighborhood. And this dog had gotten off. And I don't know if they had let it out, thinking kids weren't out at that hour, but I, I was up early. And it's off, and it starts losing its mind, and now it's coming after me, chasing me. I'm pedaling as fast as I can. My little bitty legs can pedal. I'm giving everything I have to get down this hill. Meanwhile, this thing is just nipping at the gears of my bike, trying to attack me, losing its mind. Luckily, there's a lady who was actually our next-door neighbor across the street. She was doing stuff in her out, you know, garden or whatever, and she sees what's happening, starts clapping her hands, screaming and yelling, and she gets the dog to kind of veer off of me and go chase her. She jumps in the bed of her husband's truck, and she's kind of safe. Meanwhile, I sprint inside. It was a Saturday. My mom was at work. My dad was home, and I go in, and I'm like weak, crying, freaking out at this moment, and I go, Dad, that, that dog, and the dog was named Rock. Doesn't it look like Rock? Like, that's what it was named. Rock tried to kill me. Dad chased me all the way down the hill. He's off. I thought he was going to kill me. I'm just like hysterical in this moment, and if you've heard my story before, you know that there are a lot of times where I really doubted whether or not my dad loved me, where I had seen my dad do plenty of things to my mom and to me that said he was a really poor defender of this family and made me doubt a lot of times whether or not I even loved him at all and whether he even loved us. But in what happened in the next five minutes, I knew there was love there. He may have not known how to come out all the right ways, but I knew there was love there because he simply said, get in the truck. And I went and I got in the truck. I'm sitting there. I'm like, what are we doing? Like, we're going to go to McDonald's. Like, what's going to happen right now? And then I see him come out. I played Little League Baseball. I see him come out with my bat. I'm like, oh, snap. <laughs> you know, like, what was it? It's about to go down. <laughs> and I, I'm just sitting there as this little boy in my car. And in that moment, it was like the world paused. And this man who I doubted if he loved me. In that moment, when I saw him getting ready to defend me, I knew he loved me. And he gets in the car and he goes up and he bangs on the guy's door with the bat and everything else. He just gets in this shouting match with the guy and everything else. And I don't know what all came of that in that moment. I know I, I, I very rarely, if ever, saw that dog out again. But in that moment, I never doubted that my dad actually loved me because I knew and how he showed that he was defending me that he did. And I tell you that story because I want you to understand that if you could see the hounds of hell that are coming after your life, your family, your wife, the kids of our church, then there would be some more men who would actually stand up 
And, and listen, you've probably got people, you've probably got a wife, you've probably got people, I'm specifically talking to fellows right here. You have people in your life who I'm gonna go ahead and just let you know some things. And you probably already knew this. They're doubting if you love them. Here's how you show them. They know that if a robber broke in the house, that you would start, you'd defend, that you'd be the one who would step up, you would rise up. Do you wanna show that, they, that you love them? Start defending them spiritually. Start setting boundaries. Start saying, hey, I'm gonna help wage war against Satan, your flesh, my flesh, and his lies and how they would infiltrate our home because there is so much at stake. And our enemy, hear, hear me on this. This is what I think God's leading us to into the next generation for us as a church. Man, there is so much at stake in the next generation. And our enemy, the Bible describes him as a lion, as a roaring lion looking to prowl, looking to devour. I don't know about you. Uh, there's not a whole lot of great things to watch on TV. So my family, we find ourselves watching a lot of nature shows and National Geographic. One of the things I know about predators is they don't go after the strong ones. They sit and they wait and they prowl on the young. And whether it's the infants inside of abortion or whether it's whatever's happening online or on TikTok or whether it's the increase in adolescent depression, anxiety and suicide, whatever it is, as, as someone who's looking on at this, as a man of God who's kind of sitting in the middle of this, I see him biting at the heels of our young. And the time has come for the men of this church, for the men of our society, to say, Let, let's step up. Let's step into defending the defenseless. Even if we don't know for sure if somebody else, God is on your side, fellas. It's time for us to step up. It's time for us to step in and be willing to defend. And for everybody in the room, we're getting ready to sing this song. It's called Surrounded. And you in this moment, you may feel surrounded by all three of them. Of, of the enemy Satan, the lies that your flesh has been uh, believing and, and the world around you that just kind of premeditates and wants those things to keep going and keep rocking and keep rolling. And you may feel surrounded. Here's what I want you to know. In the same way you have three enemies, you have three advocates. You have three avengers of your soul in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have a Father who loves you. You have a son who laid down his life for you and you have the spirit of truth guiding you in, in these moments. And I'm gonna invite you now to stand with us. Go ahead, stand to your feet. Stand in courage, stand boldly, stand brave. And we're gonna declare that the way we fight is not by weapons of normal warfare. The way we fight is not by bullets and guns. The way we fight is not by swords and shields. The way we fight is by the way we worship. And in the midst of our woundedness, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of whatever is going on in our life, the way we worship is the only thing that Satan fears. He, he, he could care less if your kids are well-rounded, get into the great schools, make it uh, have a, a mantle full of trophy ball trophies or a travel ball trophies. He could care less about that. But the thing that he trembles at is the cross. And when we gather together in these moments, we raise up the cross. We gather together in these moments, we become people of the cross. We make it known as we worship him and stand and declare. And my prayer is that you look around this room and you're not singing by yourself. We're singing together. And the God of angel armies is on our side. At the end of the song, please don't bug out of here. I'm gonna be baptizing a man of God who's given his life to Jesus, surrendering it to him and saying, even now, I'm, I'm, I'm walking through the whole solid ground thing. I'm surrendered to you, Jesus. I'm obeying what you've called me to do. I, I realize your love. I'm taking an intentional step into the baptism water. And I'm gonna rise up as one willing to defend your truth, your word, and your way in my life 
and the lives of my brothers and sisters around me. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you. But you were gracious enough to bring us in this morning to draw us to your word. I pray that we would be willing to use it as a weapon, God, not to harm our brother and sister, that we would not pit each other against each other, but that we would realize that we do have a shared enemy and the father of lies. He's been called out today. And I pray, Father, that you would protect your people. That when we begin to speak truth, we should anticipate it. enemy fire. And God, I pray that come whatever may, we stand strong. We not only defend and take whatever he sends our way, but we would be people who are willing to move forward, move on the offense, to know that we have the great defender behind us and before us and beside us, and that we would run headlong, not in pride, but in humility, knowing who you are, what you've done for us, into the future you have for us. Let us build our house on your solid ground today and forevermore. In your name, amen.